Friends, we are gathered to praise God and to give witness to our faith and to celebrate the life of Ellsworth Callis. We come with a mix of sadness and celebration, and we acknowledge that our loss is deep, and we draw close to one another in gathered grief. But we also remember that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We celebrate that in dying, Christ destroyed our death, and in rising, Christ restored our life, and we know that one day Christ will come again in glory. It is a good day to gather, to grieve, and to remember. It is a good day to celebrate and sing, and it is a good day to be together in the Lord's presence. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have not made us for darkness and death, but for life with you forever. Without you, we have nothing to hope for. With you, we have nothing to fear. Speak to us now your words of eternal life and set the glory of your love before us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It is good and right that we should sing today and that we should sing often. So we are going to sing and we're going to sing often in our worship today. The words to our first hymn of praise you will find in your bulletin, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Stand and Let's Sing in Praise. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, song my upon it, mount up thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, and I hold by thy good measure, safely to Jesus sought me 
the Old Testament reading from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like an eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our inequities. For as high as the heavens are above earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord. O oh, you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his work. <laughs> Obeying the voice of his word. Excuse me. Bless the Lord, all his host, his ministers who do his will. In all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. The word of God for the people of God. Great is thy faithfulness. Stand and let's sing again.
Let us pray. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, 
We join our hearts with the saints of all the ages in blessing you, the Lord, the author of life, and the giver of every good and perfect gift. We bless you for your supreme faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ, who through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension has called us to share in his life of perfect love and has opened for us the way of life eternal. Today we thank you for your servant, Ellsworth, husband, father, grandfather, friend and pastor, teacher, mentor, and wise counselor. For all of us whose lives have been touched by his, we are better for having known him. Through Ellsworth's constant and abiding love for you, we, Lord, have been recipients of your kindness and compassion. Through Ellsworth's unwavering trust in your faithfulness, we have learned not to be swallowed by life's adversities, but to fix our eyes upon you. Through Ellsworth's love of your word and gift of preaching, he has inspired countless numbers, including us, to encounter you through scripture and to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. In Ellsworth, we've known one whose heart, like our Lord's, was stirred to care for those who others so easily overlook or casually cast aside. We honor you, our Father, for the work of your spirit across all the years of Ellsworth's life. We pray that the good and gracious work you have now completed in his life here on earth would continue to abound in our lives. May our love for you and others grow ever deeper until that day comes when we will be gathered with Ellsworth and with all of your saints to praise you forever. Amen. The New Testament lesson. In the final days, final weeks of Ellsworth's life, I would spend time with him reading from his Bible, and this is his Bible. One day reading on heaven, I looked at him and said, you know, if something is lost, is it lost if you know where it is? And he said, why, not at all. I said, that's good, because I know where you're going, and I'm going to find you. Philippians chapter 2. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'd like to invite David, Elder's son, to come at this moment and speak on behalf of the family. can't be Dr. Callis's son, you say, because he carried a manuscript into the pulpit. <laughs> I, uh, I had him for a father. I never had him for a homiletics professor. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also thinking that if I falter, I may have to rely on one of these good people to, uh, to read what I wrote. My... Uh, my dad used to say that one of the keys to good preaching is knowing what to leave out. Because there's such a volume that can be said about any text of scripture, you know, except that it can't and shouldn't all be said in a single sermon. And so uh, as I rise to speak about my father, there's so much I want to say. <laughs> and I struggle to know what to leave out. Uh, when my dad was serving local churches, preaching to the same congregation every Sunday, he uh, often preached sermon series. And uh, four, six, eight weeks on a single theme or passage. And I wish I could do that. <laughs> I wish I could preach a sermon about my dad, a series of sermons about my dad. But as it is, I have this moment and I count this moment as a privilege because it's a privilege to be with you and it's a privilege to talk about him and it's a privilege to be his son. Uh, I am to speak for the family and uh, I think that above all what the family would like to say is thank you. I thank you for being here because your presence is a tribute and a comfort. Thank you for the um, stories that uh, people have shared in person and in writing. Uh, we have been, you know, really blessed and touched to hear stories from students and colleagues and friends and uh, parishioners, you know, it's been a real blessing to us. And then thank you also for loving him, because that's what keeps coming through in the stories we're hearing. It's not just that you appreciated him, or not even just that you admired him, but you loved him. And we know that, and he knew that, and I thank you for that. Uh, there are a lot of stories I'd like to tell you. I thought of another couple while we were singing. <laughs> uh, and uh, the truth is, several years ago, I began keeping uh, a document of things I want to say at my dad's service. And now here I am, I'm not going to use any of them. 
because it's, uh, it'd be very tempting for me to just go on and on about my dad with just my stories, and then you multiply that by 10, you know, if we're going to fold in my sister's stories and Janet's stories and the grandchildren and all that. So what to leave out? And uh, so I've resolved not to try to tell you any stories, but I want to tell you about one moment. It's one moment from 30 years ago, but it's a moment that I was reminded of on the day he died. On the day he died, uh, each of us uh, took, you know, individual opportunities along the way to go alone into the room where his body was. And uh, when I went in, I knelt down by that bed, and I cried on his shoulder, and I thanked him. Uh, I am so grateful for him. I am so grateful to him. And so I was saying thank you. And I was saying thank you out loud. <laughs> and in the midst of saying my thank yous to him, I started to say, you're the best. But as the words were literally forming in my mouth, I suddenly sensed that they were out of place. He was in the presence of Jesus. I could feel it. He was in the presence of Jesus. And in the presence of Christ, to point to any human being and say, you're the best, a little bit absurd, you know. <laughs> Heartfelt, well-meaning, but absurd. And so even as I was about to say it, I sensed that my father was deflecting it. And that's when I remembered the moment from 30 years ago. In 1984, uh, my dad gave the uh, Denman Lectures down in Florida, um, which at the time was the most interesting part of the Denman Lectures for me, <laughs> uh, that it was down in Florida. It was a series of lectures that he gave on the theme of um, evangelism in the hymns of Charles Wesley. And after his final presentation, the crowd that was there that night erupted in applause a standing ovation. I was near the back of the room, and uh, I was watching my dad there in the front, on the platform in the front, with this great crowd standing and applauding him. And in that moment, he made two gestures. He waved off the applause, and he pointed up. You can see that, can't you? He waved off the applause, and he pointed up. Uh, during what uh, turned out to be the last evening of his life in this world, there was a group of us that were gathered around him in his room, and we were singing a lot of hymns. And uh, along the way, we sang this great line from Wesley, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. I don't know what kind of crowns we'll have there, but evidently we'll discover that their greatest worth is found in casting them. Casting them before the one who is worthy to receive honor and blessing and glory and praise. In this world, people, you know, jockey for and cling to a whole lot of very temporary crowns, and Ellsworth Callis never did. 
He didn't aspire to earthly crowns. He wasn't very much impressed by them, and he was uncomfortable with the ones that he was given, you know. So all his life, he was casting those crowns before the one who was worthy, you know. And so 30 years hence, I realized that his gesture that night wasn't just his gesture that night. It was his gesture every day and every night. He was always saying, don't applaud me. Applaud him. Don't praise me. Praise him. So the gesture of his hands was the posture of his life. He was always pointing to Christ. A lot of people can point to Christ when they preach, and he did that, you know, better than anybody. But there are all kinds of people who were blessed by him who seldom or never heard him preach because there was a Christ-likeness to the way that he listened, the way that he greeted, the way that he served, the way that he crossed your path on a sidewalk or in a doorway, the gracious way that he managed the most routine business of life. You know. So he proclaimed the truth of Christ, but he also showed us the humility of Christ, the kindness of Christ, the grace of Christ. And he inspired us to the high calling of living for Christ. He preached it. He sang it. He lived it. We were all blessed by it. And that's part of the reason why, part of the reason why I wanted to tell him that he's the best. But he waved it off. And he pointed me to Christ.
If you knew Ellsworth Callis, you were not surprised when you came in today at the amount of music filling that bulletin. You may have even warmed up your voice in the car on the way here, knowing that you would be called on to participate and sing along. Dr. Callis told me last summer, a little apologetically actually, that he had chosen six hymns for his memorial service. Six. He wanted this to be a singing service. For us to sing our way through his favorite hymns, to sing the gospel story, even as we celebrated the way he sang it as well. And everyone who worshiped with him remarked that he hadn't picked up a hymnal in a worship service in decades. People were amazed that he seemed to know them all by heart. When we sing the hymns, he would say, we sing the story of God. And it wasn't just in church. David and Taddy remember riding in the car with their dad driving on various trips and singing their way to and from their destinations. In the days before we had written history, in the days of oral tradition, songs were often used to preserve history, to tell stories, even to act as maps. Instead of giving direction, you could sing someone the way and they would remember their way home in song. The best of our hymns are like that. They are maps for us. They walk us through our history, letting us sing our way along the gospel story. And in so many of them, the journey of the hymn is completed with a last verse about the victorious crossing into the presence of Jesus. If you sing the hymns enough, you go to heaven again and again in the last verses. And when we sing them together, we're, we're predicting the closure of our story. We're singing our own way home. I think that Dr. Callis wanted us to sing our way along that gospel story today, to sing even as we gather to honor the homecoming of one who sang the story so well to us. For Ellsworth Callis, that song began very early. He came under conviction at an evening revival and got saved at age 10, and the world has been better for it ever since. His call to preach came quickly after he gave his life to Christ. He once told me about a conversation where he approached the pastor in his family's congregation and told him that he would be glad to fill in in the pulpit any Sunday. If that pastor ever needed to be out for a Sunday, he would be glad to step in. How old were you when you offered that, I asked. Oh, probably 10 or 11, he said. Can you imagine a 10 or 11-year-old offering to preach for you? If it was Ellsworth Callis, you could. That calling quickly grew into a ministry of preaching and traveling around to churches that would invite him to do revivals when he was just 15 or 16, 17 years old. In Iowa, the boy evangelist was invited more and more to other places. He swears it was because they got him for cheap. <laughs> I think it was easy to see early on a master in the making. And his gifts... And God's grace continued to open doors, and the places that he preached began to span more than just these little Iowa churches. He went on to pastor in Iowa, in Wisconsin, 
in Ohio, to study at Harvard, to serve with the World Methodist Council, to preach again and again like at places like the Chautauqua Institute and the Kinfolk Tabernacle, and in innumerable pulpits, large and small around the country, around the world, places both grand and humble. And then to land by the providence of God here at Asbury Seminary, this place was special to him. This chapel, this pulpit, he talked about this pulpit every time he stepped into it as a place of honor. He loved this pulpit, but you know he loved every pulpit that he preached from. He said he even loved the pulpit in places they didn't have a pulpit. <laughs> I think there was a little judgment in that comment sometimes. He would accept invitations from the tiniest churches that would call. They would call and say things like, surely, surely we couldn't get the Ellsworth Callus to come all the way out here. Surely you could, he would reply. And he would go, and he would preach as if in the auditorium filled with thousands. He felt it was an honor to preach God's word every place that he was called and he went. But as many places as God sent him, he went back again and again to Iowa. Every year, almost, he made this pilgrimage. He called it his sentimental journey. He returned to the places where he began, and it gave him a sense of rootedness. And it gave him that gratefulness that we all knew characterized him, to remember where he had come from, that sense of place. It was important to Ellsworth Callis. Being rooted mattered. I can hear his voice. I can hear him say it in my head. Beginnings matter, he would tell us. Beginnings matter, so pay attention. Never forget your beginnings. Beginnings matter. That was just one of the many lessons he taught on what mattered. Beginnings matter. Beauty matters, he would say. Art and poetry matter, history matters, names matter. He would call most anyone by name, those in present company or in culture, literature, and history. Um, some Sundays as a pastor, he would welcome 25 or more people into membership in the church, and without a scrap of paper in his hand, he would introduce them all by name and tell their story. He cared for people by calling them by name. And the name of the student worker who cleaned his office was just as likely to be on his lips in prayer as the names of world dignitaries. Names matter, he said. Names matter because people matter. They, they matter to God, and so they should matter to you. So much mattered to him. And he was remarkable at getting it to matter to us, too, because when he told us about it, we could tell that we mattered, that we mattered to him. He had a beautiful way of making that clear to us with just a look, with an incredibly well-placed, kind word, with a conversation where he would take time to sit with us and listen. He communicated that as a father, his attention and joy to discovering what mattered to his children and then to his grandchildren it was a beautiful thing to behold for a man who resisted pride in every fashion he had no no problem taking pride in his family
And he did again and again. I'm proud of you, he would say. I'm proud of you. God love you. His wife, Janet, mattered to him in a very wonderful way. The smile that crossed his lips when he talked about her was a beautiful thing to behold. His whole countenance would change when he said the word Janet. And they both expressed such gratitude for what felt to them like a lifetime together. Her presence in his life brought joy and life. We're so blessed, they would say. We're so blessed, and best of all, we know it. He communicated that his students mattered. The fact that one of the world's greatest preachers would end up teaching beginning preaching students is both a gift and an astonishment. Imagine, if you will, that Michelangelo offered to teach an art class to kindergartners. That's about what it's like. How in the world could a great master of preaching bear to hear so many bad sermons? I think it's because he had the gift of making even the worst of preachers become great because he believed in them, in us. Let me tell you, there is nothing like the fear of the Lord cast in you if you're going to preach in front of Ellsworth Callus. When you did, you preached better than you ever had in your life. You drew on resources you had never imagined that you had. You called down the Holy Spirit. Please, Holy Spirit, please help me preach before this great man. And, and once you preached and you sat down, he would stand up before you and before the class. And, and he would say these words every time. He would say, and so, and so, what shall we say to Jessica? And then he would give the title of the sermon, because titles matter. And so what shall we say to Jessica about singing our way home? And your classmates would mutter a few words, and then you would hold your breath while you waited to see what he would answer about what your, felt like your soul laid bare. And if he said you had done well, you felt better about yourself than you ever had in your life. And if he said that you had done poorly, you still felt better about yourself <laughs> than you ever had in your life. It's such a mystery. One of his students once asked, how is it that he could put the knife in and turn it? And we were still smiling when we walked away. And when we got out the door, we would say to ourselves, I believe he cut me. But we were grateful for it. You know, sometimes in our minds, we, his former students, still hear those words after we preach a sermon. And so, what shall we say to Steve, to Stacy, to Alicia, to Jessica? What shall we say? He gave strong words of correction with the same love and grace that he gave words of recognition and affirmation. And those words were so powerful. He knew how to use words, didn't he? both in and out of the pulpit. It was his gift of written words that brought him into homes and churches through his books that went around the world. He didn't publish his first book until he was 65 years old. Did you know that? And then he made up for lost time. <laughs> he came into our churches in studies like Disciple Bible Study, Christian Believer, and The Grand Sweep. He came into our personal reading with his unique take on scripture that had him approaching the Bible from a different angle. Parables from the backside, New Testament stories from the backside, Christmas from the backside. He joked that 
He had never expected to become so well known for his backside. <laughs> he was a man of priceless words because he was a man of the word. Those books, that curriculum that went around the world, it didn't just deepen individual believers, but entire churches and the church as a whole. We are forever grateful for that. He used these gifts of words to write letters of encouragement. His notes were far more prolific than anything he ever published. He was known to send a thank you note to someone for showing up to hear him preach. He was known to send a thank you note to someone for sending him a thank you note. I entertained the thought of having a show of hands for everyone who had received a note in this room from Ellsworth Callis, but I thought better of it because if they allow postal service in heaven, I'm afraid that those that did not raise their hand would promptly get one this next week. <laughs> and that's why I think that he would feel it appropriate as a letter writer himself that the New Testament lesson today is from a letter. This passage was one that Dr. Callis preached on countless times, one underlined in his Bible. The text in itself is Paul quoting a familiar passage to people already. It's a song. These are words quoted from early Christian hymns. See how he snuck another one in on us? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, Paul sings who though he was in the form of God, did not re regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. When we think of hymns of triumphant praise, we expect to sing them to our king, to our Lord, but this is a hymn to the servant. That word servant was a title so uniquely beautiful that Paul himself put it on his letterhead again and again. It says that the thing that drew people to our Lord was the fact that he laid aside his greatness in a way that continually surprised people. That instead of just displays of miracles and power, he displayed his power through service and humility. This song that Christ sang through his life is so counterintuitive to everything else in our world. And that's one reason that the song of the servant is so captivating, so catchy that it makes us want to sing along, that we ourselves are compelled to sing it. This downwardly mobile song of the cross is confusing for us because nothing in the world is like it. And that's why we need people in our lives that sing this song in every generation. It takes repeated incarnations of the song of the servant for us to grasp what greatness looks like in the eyes of God, what it means to have the mind of Christ. That's why the song of Ellsworth Callis was so powerful, because it echoed Christ's humility, his love, and because he invited us to sing the same. Ask yourself what it was about being in his presence that made us feel as if we were in the presence of God himself. Was it that resonating baritone voice, that object of envy for every preacher that ever heard it? Was it his command of words, his knowledge of scripture? Was it his towering presence? Or was it the posture of a servant? 
the one who approached everyone around with humility and love. There was not an ounce of self-importance in Ellsworth Callis, but instead he approached the world as one, as Charles Wesley put it when he adapted these words of Paul, one who emptied himself of all but love. In Ellsworth's copy of E.M. Bounds' book, The Power of Prayer, the copy he gave to David when he became a pastor, he underlined this passage. I read it to you from that book now. Big hearts make big preachers. Good hearts make good preachers. The pastor binds his people to him and rules his people by his heart. They may admire his gifts. They may be proud of his ability. They may be affected for the time by his sermons. But the stronghold of his power is his heart. His scepter is love. The throne of his power is his heart. Ellsworth Callis did things that were great with his life. He did things that mattered, but they were great because they were done with the posture of a servant in love and humility. The more he resisted the accolades and titles that the world crowned him with, the more we gave them. When I returned to Wilmore last year, over, after over a decade away, I found that we had named an entire village for him and a scholarship and a preaching chapel. My own home church in Texas named a room after him and people would ask, was he a pastor of our church? In a way, we would say. In a way, he was a pastor to all of us. There's at least one alumni who's given his son the middle name Ellsworth and here in Wilmore, an admiring ex-student came into possession of an adorable little white dog in need of a name. You guessed it. At least she asked his permission before she gave it his name. Only one day he was at the post office walking in when he heard someone calling Ellsworth. <laughs> Ellsworth, you get over here right now. It was not, not a tone he was accustomed to hearing when someone used his name. On his own lips, the great namesakes of things like Callus Village were simply called things like the village. The grand years he served our community as president, bringing incredible leadership and new life to this place, he referred to simply as my years of service to the seminary. Those are years that we at Asbury are profoundly grateful for. The more importance we assigned him, the more time he spent with the common person, the more that people called on him to speak and to write, the more he listened. The more we placed him on pedestals, the more he stooped to care for the least among us. This was his hymn, his song, the song of the servant, and he sang it all the way home. That we would sing along with that song today would be his fondest wish for us. And so, and so what shall we say? What shall we say to Ellsworth Callis about a life well-lived, well-loved, words shared, songs sung, stories told, people blessed and blessed? What shall we say but well done? Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.
when Dr. Callis chose a hymn, he did not choose them primarily for the tune. He chose for the text because words are important. And when he chose the next hymn, he selected a real treasure trove. Now we're going to remain seated as we sing There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. And it doesn't have an asterisk beside the next title, but I think we must stand as we sing It Is Well With My Soul. So we'll remain seated for the first one and stand for the second.
What can we say to the Lord but thank you? Let's go to him in a prayer of thanks. Let's say our prayers. Merciful Father and Lord of all life, we praise you that we are made in your image to reflect your truth and light. We thank you for the life of your servant, Ellsworth Callis, for the love he received from you and showed among us. And above all, we rejoice at your gracious promise to all your servants living and departed that we shall rise again at the coming of Christ. We give you thanks for your unshakable kingdom, and we worship you in reverence and awe. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Come we that love the Lord, stand and sing again.
You have sung your way through the story, and you have sung it well. And now, although there seems no more room to hold it, there is one final blessing. Following that benediction, I hope you'll remain standing as the family exits, and then they'd like to invite you to to join them at a reception in our student center just across the center of campus so that you can greet them and each other. Receive now this blessing. Now may the God of peace that brought back again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you until you are perfect in his sight through Jesus the Christ, the servant and Lord, to him be glory now and forever. Amen.